Well, guys, we are starting a new series today, and uh, unlike Making Love Stick, there's no Cupid shooting people with arrows or anything like that. Uh, pretty serious topic, but just like, you know, some of the times the, the greatest joy that we ever experience is, is right after the darkness has come in. So we're going to kind of look at, at Jesus' darkest hour. We're going to look at that time where he was on the cross, and we're going to look at the words that he spoke. There's seven phrases, and uh, we're going to get started with the very first one right now. But before we do that, you're going to see the ushers coming down the aisles with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, right now is your opportunity to put your hand in the air. An usher will put a Bible into your hand. This is a free gift from us to you. We encourage you to use it, write in it. Uh, as you're following along, you don't even need to know the books of the Bible. All the page numbers are going to be up there for you so you can follow along. All right, well, we're going to just jump right into this and look at that very first phrase that Jesus spoke while he was in, uh, on the cross. And the context here is, is it's either right as, at, at the very moment when Jesus is having the, the nails uh, hammered into his hands and feet, or it is immediately right after that. But while this is going on, Jesus looks around him, and he starts to pray to God. And he says, Father... Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So who is it that Jesus is trying to forgive here? And what, what is it going on that they don't know what they're doing? I mean, these guys are hammering a nail into somebody's hands and their feet. They should know what they're doing. To understand what is happening here, and to understand these words of Jesus we need to understand the greater concept. And most of us who, if you've been in the church for a while, you're familiar with the idea that Jesus died for our sins. You've heard that. And uh, you also know that, that Jesus did not lay his life, or he did, it, his life was not taken from him, but he laid his life down. And when he went to the cross, he was fulfilling that calling for which he was brought into the world. He knew that this was gonna happen. And in fact, in that moment, it says that Jesus could have called on 10,000 angels and they would have come down, they would have rescued Jesus from that moment. So it is true that Jesus laid down his life. He died for us. But Jesus didn't commit suicide. Jesus that day was murdered. And to be murdered, you have to have people who hate you, people who despise you, people who you have wronged in some fashion to some degree that they feel the need to plot your demise. That's what happened that day. Jesus was murdered. But to really understand what was going on, we even have to see a broader context. You see, from the very beginning, uh, God had called out this nation of Israel to be his mouthpiece. He was gonna speak and reveal himself to the world through this nation of Israel. And through this entire time period, the, there, there was prophets that would rise up and they would begin to talk about a day when there would be this Messiah. There would be this Savior who would come and would teach the people what they need to know and would save them. He would rescue them. And so at this point, we see that the nation of Israel is in captivity to the Romans. This is the height of the Roman Empire and they are, they are subject to captivity and all of the things that come to that. And in the context of all these prophecies, there has been built this, this religious order. 
And there are two groups, groups of people who, who rule the religious order of the day. One of them is known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were the teachers. Uh, they would be the ones that if you went to church or you went to synagogue on a, uh, on a Sabbath, they'd be the ones that were teaching you. And then there was another group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they only believed in like the first five books of the Bible. They really weren't as excited, as excited about the teaching, but they were the ruling power. There were, they were the puppet government of the Roman Empire there in Judea. And so these two groups were the ones who were in control. And into this context, Jesus is born. He has some extraordinary things happen as his youth, but then pretty quiet childhood. At the age of 30, he begins this ministry, this ministry of, that, that's spoken with authority. He backs it up with miraculous deeds. This ministry lasts for only three years before these ruling parties plot and execute his demise. So that's the world that Jesus was in. And that's the context. But my question is this. We hear that Jesus did a lot of good things, right? He healed people. What did Jesus do that warranted these guys hunting him down and eventually killing him? Well, one of those things that Jesus did is he would heal on the Sabbath. It says, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You see, for the Jews, healing on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, that was a sin. You see, God had, had created everything in six days. On that seventh day, God rested. And that was a model for us to follow. And God says in one of the Ten Commandments, you are to honor the Sabbath. You are to refrain from work. And so these Pharisees, they said, well, what does that mean that you refrain from work? So these guys said, well, we're going to have to like put something around this because nobody's going to make sense to anybody. So they come up with this system that if you take so many steps, you're just walking. But you take that next step and you have just worked, right? Or maybe for some of you, you know, you go and you punch the time clock and you, you work during the week. But what happens if you're mowing the lawn on the weekend? Are you working or are you, you having fun? Probably for most of us, that's working, right? But these were the guys, they, they figured this stuff all out and they were so concerned about it that they wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. And so here comes Jesus, he's healing. And obviously this guy's do, doing some pretty amazing things here, but you know, obviously healing may be his, his work, right? I mean, that's kind of what he's doing. He better not be doing that on the Sabbath. So Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he says to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man who was standing there, they were watching this whole thing come, come together. He says, stretch out your hand. The man had a shriveled up hand for years. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Does this make any sense at all? I mean, they just saw this most amazing thing and all they can think to think about is, I think that's work. I think that's work. I think he just worked on the Sabbath. 
I mean, that'd be like if Jesus was, was running around today and he healed somebody, and we go, wow, we've never seen anything like that. This, this man just healed, healed him. But wait a minute, isn't that practicing medicine without a license? Hey, somebody, somebody, we gotta get this guy here. Did you see what he did? It's ridiculous. And Jesus calls him out on that. Because these same guys who put all these rules in place and want to follow all of it, if one of their sheep or an oxen falls into a pit, they would get that oxen out. Why? Because that's their livelihood. They'd lose money. But these other people, do they really even care about them? All right, Jesus did some bad things. He did some healing on the Sabbath. But you were thinking, that probably doesn't warrant death. We haven't heard all the things that Jesus did. Jesus was out there, and he did not train his disciples in the proper way that they were to conduct themselves. So he did a lot of other stuff as well. In fact, right here it says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, who are you, their mother? It, it really, they, he said this. I don't know why the disciples didn't record it, but it's in there somewhere. You know he said that. All right, well, they're upset about him washing their hands. This is even before we, they knew about germs. So what, this is another one of their traditions. They had this thing where you washed your hands, you put the water, you let it drip from your elbows, and now you were ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. And so Jesus really replied to them, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help I might have otherwise have received from me is now a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Jesus is looking at these guys. He says, you're so worried about this one little ceremonial thing that you invented. You came up with this. And yet, you do this all over the time. You, you break, you come up with these rules and you follow them and then you break God's. And what was happening is, at this time, what, they, what people would do is they would come in and they'd say, everything that I have right here, when I die someday, it's all devoted to God. I'm gonna give it away to the temple. It'd be like you coming in there and say, everything that I have, I'm putting in my will tomorrow. I'm going to give it all to LifePoint Christian Church. It's all going, which is a great thing for you to do. You really should go out and do that. But see, here's what they would do then. Then, when their father, their mother, who God had told them that they were to honor, would come to them, would say, hey, I need some help. They'd say, oh, I wish I could help you out. I, I just, I, I would. I've already put in my will that everything I have is going to go to God someday. So it's, if I did, I'd be nullifying that vow. Oh, shucks. I wish I could help out. I'm sorry about that. It, it, it's silly. No, God says that you were to follow his commands. And he says to honor your father and, and your mother. And so these guys are coming up with this stuff, these rules, so that they can avoid doing what God actually called them to do. And Jesus calls him out on it. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people, they honor me with, my, with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. That's the kind of stuff that these guys were doing. 
And Jesus comes into their world and he rocks it. Jesus isn't trying to control people. Instead, Jesus goes and he teaches them how they can have a relationship to God and that you don't have to go through all of these rules and regulations. He tells them that God loves them. He backs it up with miraculous deeds. And the people love Jesus. And they follow. Crowds would follow Jesus. And these guys go, hey, wait a minute. The crowds are following Jesus. He's honing in on our party here. This is our gamut. We've been running this thing, and it is profitable for us. And we're able to control the people, and we're able to have the highest places and the highest spots of honor. Because if anybody wants to go to God, they've got to go through us first. So they don't like Jesus. And at first, they try to draw Jesus in. Maybe they can pull him in, some of his popularity. But then that doesn't work. And then they try to threaten Jesus, but that doesn't work. I mean, Jesus points this out. He, this is what he describes. He says, he says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to others. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. Oh, we sang a dirge over here, and you did not mourn. For John, this is speaking of John the Baptist, who came before Jesus to kind of lay out a pathway for him, kind of a forerunner. John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. John the Baptist, he was like a prophet. He would go out there and say just kind of outlandish things, and he ate bugs, and he never drank any alcohol, and then he had camel hair for a belt, and they say, well, look at that guy out there. Yeah, people say he's, you know, speaking things of God, but I think that guy has a demon out there. And then the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, well, he came eating and drinking, you know, they'd see Jesus having a glass of wine with, at, a, at a meal. And they say, oh, well, look at him. Well, he's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus says, wisdom is proved right by her actions. Wisdom is proved right by her actions. Have you ever had any, somebody, somebody try to do that to you? That whatever you do, they have a way of spinning it? You show up too early, Oh, look at you. You're all uppity trying to be here. First one, yeah. Uh. And then the next day, you're, you're late. And I look, this lazy bum finally dragging them. Yeah. No matter what you do, they have a way to spin it. Because at the end of the day, they just want to control you. They just want to control. And they don't want their control taken away. These are ends justify the means kind of guys. And so they said, you know what? This Jesus character, he is a threat to us, and he's a threat to our popularity, and we need to take him out. In fact, it would be better for everybody else if he was gone, because imagine this ruckus that's going, and the, and the Romans come in, and they say, we got to clamp down, and they start beating people up, and more crucifixions, and it, you know, it'd just be a bad deal. Wouldn't it be better if one man died for the rest of the people? Here's one thing you always have to remember. God is never going to ask for you to violate his principles so that you can do his will. You will never have to violate his principles to do his will. And always know this, every time you're tempted to do that because you really think the end's gonna justify the mean and it's gonna be a greater good, know that you have now stepped out of sync with your heavenly father because that is not the path that he has drawn you on. So what these guys do is they know they can't take Jesus in the middle of the day. They're afraid of all the crowds. You know, they may revolt. So they find one of his disciples that will betray him. And then they do it under a cover of darkness. And once they have him, they run him through this, this phony rush trial so that they can get him to crucifixion in the morning. 
Think about that for a minute. Here are these Romans that they want to be free of. They want, they want to see freedom for their people. And here these are, are Jewish people. God, God's anointed race, you know, his anointed country to be his mouthpiece. That he gave all these prophecies about this Messiah. And who is it that hands him over? But his own brothers. His flesh and blood hand him over. And we're not talking about a nice execution. I mean, if you were a Roman citizen, they treated you right. You were beheaded. You got to wear your clothes over in a second. But this was crucifixion. This was having your hands nailed to a cross, your feet. This was hours and hours of agony and torture, eventually drowning as the fluid would build up on your lungs. You'd have to push down on your, on your feet, on that nail, to get a breath until you're finally so weak you can't do it anymore. Maybe you've seen movies or pictures of Jesus. They always have something covering him. But that's for the movie. He was completely naked up there on that cross. Shamed before everybody. And it's in this context is when they came to the place called the skull. There they crucified him along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. And it's here in this place that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then they divided up his clothes by casting lots. How do we do what Jesus did? I mean, Jesus taught from the beginning that we're to, to love other people, that we're to forgive them. But forgiving people is hard. This is really hard stuff. And to do what he did, when they're still in the act, you haven't even got to the point of having a wound, you know, that's going to be healed over time. It, it, this is in the process. You see, Jesus modeled this for us on the cross, so that we can follow and do the same thing, and we can actually obey him. And the first thing that we see Jesus do is that he's loving his enemy. That's the way. If you want to forgive somebody, you first have to love them. And Jesus on the cross is doing the exact same thing that he taught about beforehand. It was Jesus who said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. you know, when Jesus says those words, they, they know not what they do. I think when he says that, he says that because he is in the process of loving them. You know, when you really love somebody, you can put yourself, you can empathize with them, you can put yourself in their place. And I think when he started looking out there, he realized that even what they thought they were doing, they thought they were gonna get by with something and that, that they, were, they were gonna be better off with Jesus out of the way. But were they really gonna be better off? Is, is somebody else really better off when they've stolen from you or when they put you down? I mean, maybe sometimes it feels like they are, but know that on the inside, it, they're not. And in fact, most of the time what happens is that people who are harming, harming you are doing so because others have done that to them. I mean, there's that old saying, hurt people hurt people. People who've been hurt, they go out and they hurt other people. This stuff right here is tough stuff. I mean, some of you guys know that my wife has a, is teaching high school for the first time this year. She's a, she got in there to teach child and, and parenting classes. She loves babies. She thought she'd be 
having all these, these little girls that just want to learn how to change a diaper. And she's got the thugs. She's got the, the juvenile delinquents. She's got people who, who are in gangs. She's got people who have done armed robbery in her class. She's got a 15-year-old girl who's pregnant right now with her second child. She was pregnant when she was 13. And this has just been hard because they they've not been nice to my wife. They have been mean to her. And she's just a sweetheart, all right? She's not, she's not an in-your-face kind of person. And there was this one kid, and he's just a ringleader, all right? And he'd just go along. He'd stir him up every time. If he was gone, she could kind of get by. But this one kid, every, every day, just taking it to her. And I've had to struggle because I, I want to fix things. And I'm her husband. I want to defend her. And I just, I've had this fantasy of getting alone with this kid and just, I'm serious. I've had a hard time, I, you know, to, to work through that, you know. I have to go out for runs sometime just to release. But I've had a lot of anger towards this kid. But God has, has maintained her through this. And that semester ended. But that kid, along with a lot of these other ones that said they hated her and had all these issues, they come to her class now on her own. They just, after school, they come by because they want to see Miss Woosh. And they... They just, nobody's ever loved on them before. They've never tasted any of that. And she's crossing the line all the time out there. But nobody cares what happens what happens in that wing, all right? So these people, the kids ask her, you know, what they think of, you know, what she thinks of God, she tells them. And this week, that one kid that I hate, okay, <laughs> he came to her and, and he said, he told her how, how ever since he was a kid, and also this last week, his cousin and his uncle would rape him. And it just, that's what always happened when he was a little kid. And this week, he was with his cousin, and his cousin apologized for it, and then said, hey, you know, and, and raped him again. And I'll tell you, it, when I heard that, when I picture that kid getting sodomized by his uncle and his cousin, and I know the stuff that he's dealing with and just the issues right now. It's a little easier to forgive him today than it was last week. It's a little easier to have love. We gotta, we gotta love people, okay? That's what Jesus did. But you also have to know your position. You see, Jesus, he humbled himself, okay? When he came to earth, he, he was God in flesh. He could have done whatever he wanted. But found in that, he humbled himself in the appearance of a man. And he, and he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. So much that he even washed the feet of his disciples. Now here's something you need to understand. It is easier for you and I to humble ourselves than it is for Jesus to humble himself. It's easier for us. I mean, Jesus, how do you, how do you humble yourself when you're almighty God? He's perfect. He never sinned. But you and I, it should be pretty easy for us to humble ourselves, right? I mean, aren't we the ones that Jesus said these things? He says, why do you look at a speck in, of the sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, oh, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's this big old plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Whenever you're having a hard time forgiving somebody, 
and you're pointing that finger, you know the old, old saying? Got to look at those three fingers that are pointing back. See, anytime you've got this big old pile of sin that you can draw on if you need a little humbleness, you just go right back to it. And you find that kid that, that when you were in grade school that you picked on. Or you go and, and you, you think of the times you, you took things from other people. Or that you were careless or you didn't think. Times that you've stolen something from somebody else. Oh, but it wasn't that big a deal. But I was in a rough patch at that time, you know? I'm sure the other person thinks that, right? No, you, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to know your position. But even then, this is just hard stuff. When you're feeling the pain and you're feeling, you know, and, and it just keeps coming back again, it is hard to forgive those that have wronged us. But I think that at the end of the day, you have to rely on the power of God. You have to draw on his resources if you're going to actually forgive people. And, and the thing is, is that he's got all these resources. When you start to really have this relationship, whatever you've lost or whatever has been taken from you or however you've been harmed, the closer you draw to him, to those riches, you're going to feel rich. And it's going to be easier to forgive. Somebody steals $7,000 from you this week. How's that impact your, your week? What happens to you? Just run through the, through the scenario really quick. For some of you, you don't make your house payment. You, you foreclosure gets started, right? They repossess your car. You lose $7,000. How angry, how hard to forgive is it? But what if early in the week, you won the lottery. You're $70 million richer. A little easier to forgive that $7,000? Maybe just write it off. Not even worth your time. See, Jesus laid this out so that we could follow him. And when he was on that cross, he was not alone because his father was with him. His father was empowering him, strengthening him so that he could carry out his tasks as a man just as we take out, carry out ours as a man. And when he did that, there were others that followed his example. They followed and did what he did. One of them was a disciple named Stephen. Stephen went out after Jesus had died and risen from the, from the dead and the spirit came, he's out there teaching about Jesus. And these Pharisees and Sadducees are like, you gotta be kidding me. I thought we just took care of this. Here's Stephen out there running around teaching about Jesus again. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God. In that moment, God said, hey, I'm gonna show you a little taste of what it's like. Here, here it is. He got to just feel that, that glory come in. And then he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, I see heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he falls on his knees and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Stephen lived it out. He, did, he followed the example that was given him. He had all of those other resources. And when he looked out at those that were killing him, even that young man Saul, he was able to, to show love and have empathy and forgiveness 
from a young man named Saul who not only is killing him, but is trying to snuff out the truth that other people are going to experience. We need Stevens out there that can love on people like Saul because some of you guys know what happens to Saul. You see, Saul comes around and he ends up meeting Jesus and he changes his name to Paul. And he goes out and he starts planting churches. He starts planting those churches that reach out to people who are Gentiles, people who are not of Jewish origin. In fact, everybody who, who is not of Jewish origin has Paul as their spiritual father. If you're a believer in Christ today and you're not a Jew, this guy right here is your spiritual father. You just never know who's out there and you never know who it is that's attacking you and you don't know what God has in store with them, what he can do through your life. But you don't have to know that. You just let God do what he's gonna do and you forgive and you rest on those resources and you just love these people and you just remind of all the other stuff that you've done and you watch how God is able to just shine his glory in you that you can feel it and you feel his presence. You feel that feeling, that, that filling up of him. Heavenly Father, these things that, that you have laid out for us, this is not easy stuff. It's easy to, to talk about it on the stage. It's easy to read about it. It's a lot harder when you're still suffering from the pain that was inflicted on you by somebody else. When it feels like there's no justice, where it feels like they got away with it, and that you just stuck dealing with it again and again and again. But I know, Lord, that you call on us to do these things, not so much that we even help out others, but that we experience your peace and your power. And so we call on that now this week as, as we go out and we find those who we need to forgive and we truly forgive them from the heart as your son taught us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.